Hi, this is Armin Kimmelman, and you're listening to the FSF Podcast. The show that not even Quark wanted to acquire. We asked, but he said no, not for all the gold, press, latinum in the universe. Our show is brought to you by our charity sponsor, the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund, which supports the Wish Upon a Teen Foundation and helps out sick kids when they need it most. And just imagine the comfort you'll give Redshirt Crewman number 138. He'll know that when he puts on the red shirt and joins Pork in impressing the Grand Nagus, that he didn't leave his family destitute and without hope. Because the Redshirt Widows and Orphans Fund has his back and what's left of his clothes. All right, guys, our guest today is making his second trip to the FSF podcast, and we're just excited, as excited this time to have him as we were on the first. He's an excellent, really super smarter about most things uh, than than me. That sentence <laughs> makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> the sentence may have just proved your point. <laughs> the sentence is proving my point, and I think we should just leave it in just because of that. <laughs> But he's an excellent guy, and he's super smarter about most things, probably everything, than I am. But in particular, regarding to Shakespeare, we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. And I'm sure that we're going to talk about a little bit of Trek, and I know that because I've seen our list of questions. But even some Buffy, too, because, again, I've seen our list of questions. Uh, But we're also super excited to have him here today because amongst all those other things, because amongst all those other things, he is also an amazing author and we, we are excited to help him promote his new novel as well so everybody let's give a big round of applause that goes like this and welcome armin shimmerman back to the fsf podcast welcome back to the show armin thank you tim thank you nick thank you kathleen happy to be here hello everyone he's happy to be here he's been here before and he's still happy to be I'm here. i'm happy to be there yeah absolutely that's like borderline miraculous <laughs> A change in weather is always good. There you go. <laughs> That's true. All right. So Armin, uh, we're recording this. So everybody knows on, on February 2nd, 2023. And now you had a new book released on January 24th. So just about a, a week or so ago. Uh, and that book was entitled The Imbalance of Power. Actually, now, it was entitled Illyria dot dot The Imbalance of Power. <laughs> There's that. You, okay. <laughs> Back to that's him what being I, smarter than you. Exactly. Back to him being smarter than me. But that's also what I get for trusting just the the Amazon snapshot that does not did not have it titled properly. So I'll have to double check that, make sure I didn't read it improperly, which is entirely a possibility. There it is. Illyria imbalance of power. This is the book three in this his trilogy for Illyria. So, um, Armin, without giving away spoilers, so that people have a reason to go buy your book, tell take everybody through your book. What's going on in this book, and what could they look forward to in this new novel? Well, first, I I need to preface that the fact that it's the third book of a trilogy, so uh, you can indeed read the third book on its own, but probably it's a lot better to start at the beginning and get through the first and second books before you get to the third book. But um, because it is the third book, it wraps up the adventure. Uh, The adventure takes place in um, Elizabethan times, uh, specifically 1584. And uh, I have two main characters. One most people are familiar with. It's a man named William Shakespeare, although in my book, he's not a man. He's a teenager. He's about 16 or 17 years old. Uh, The other man, a man I have studied uh, most of my life, is a, is a wonderful eccentric uh, and a Renaissance man. His name was Dr. John Dee, who lived in Shakespeare's time. And, and uh, one of the things I try to do with my books is try to suggest how Shakespeare, a young Shakespeare, went from being um, a rustic from a small town in England, Stratford-upon-Avon, to becoming uh, the English literature's greatest poet and playwright. And, um, and perhaps the John Dee had something to do with it. It's not totally all fantastical um, because uh, scholars and research people have uh, found that John Dee and, and Shakespeare did have a real relationship. And, and perhaps some of the books that have echoes in the plays uh, may have come from John Dee's library, which is one of the things I suggest in my books. But it's primarily a spy story. It's a, it's a, it's a historical novel that deals with uh, very historical things. Everything in the book uh, that doesn't have to deal with the fictional characters, that's not the right way to say that. So let me start the other way around. 
my book deals with history and it deals with fiction and the fictional part is that uh, most of the characters in the book are from Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night. Now there are a lot of other people in the book besides the Twelfth Night characters and all of those people are historically correct. All of them could indeed have met where I say they met and every historical fact whether it's about a table, about what they drink, about what they eat, um, you know what they're thinking at the time, all of that has been researched and, and all of it uh, is absolutely true. So if you've heard otherwise that England was a, a merry old place, um, I beg to differ. Yeah. Fair Thanks, enough. Sir, could I have some more? Didn't <laughs> period all together, but thank you very much, Nick. That's now, about uh, 220 years later. Now, one of the things that I, I we've talked about this with some of the other authors that have been on our show. In this, in this day and age of uh, the online critic and the people who are in a rush to go out and say something negative just to say something negative is seemingly about everything. It's always impressive to me when I find books that are, you know, especially nowadays that or even, you know, movies and shows that come out and they have nice ratings to them. And so if anything has a, above a four star rating, I'm automatically going, well, it can't be that bad. And the closer it gets to five, it has to be even better because especially in this day and age of the naysayer and everywhere I have looked for your books, whether it was Goodreads, whether it was Amazon, uh, a couple other websites out there, everyone has reviewed uh, the entirety of your writings at 4.3 or higher. Uh, I think 4.3. Yeah, I think 4.3 is the lowest that I've seen uh, one of one of your books be rated. Uh, and my, so, wife. my wife criticized <laughs> it very high. <laughs> uh, I can see her as being quite the critic. Yeah. Yeah. She's read it several times. She, she has some problems. There you go. Uh, well, you know what? Hey, uh, my wife's my worst critic. So I think that's only fair. They, they help keep fair. us on our only toes. Fair. Yes. So, but I think I just want to say that I think that's a, a good indication of the, the, the quality of the work that you're putting into these books and the history uh, research that you, you know, historical research, rather, we'll say it the proper way, the historical research that you've done in order to make these books seem accurate for their time and place. So kudos to you for a job well done. Thank you, Tim. And they're also funny at times as well, because after all, uh, some, a lot of the characters, especially in the latter book, in the last book, uh, are from Twelfth Night, who are, that's a comic play. So mm -hmm. uh, there are comic situations, and I hope uh, comic dialogue that uh, people can appreciate. And my dialogue is a little bit uh, true to life for them, so it's it's a little hard. It's not quite Shakespearean, but it's, uh, it's faux Shakespearean. And uh, that was part of the uh, impulse of the book, was to try to write something akin to the hundreds, if not thousands, of lines I've had to memorize from the plays. So in addition to your latest trilogy, and to, in addition to the Illyria trilogy, you also co-wrote a series, The Merchant Prince, which mm -hmm. includes a book of that title, as well as Outrageous Fortune and Capital Offense. So for those who haven't explored your writing and want to delve into your back catalog a bit, what can you tell us about some of your earlier stories as well? Uh, my Merchant Prince trilogy um, was the beginning of my writing career, uh, as far as novels. Uh, as a young man, um, uh, I think I was just a preteen or just gone in my teens. I wrote a lot of poetry and got published actually for that. I don't know how that happened, but I did. But I, um, I had no real desire to, to write novels until I met a publisher at a Star Trek convention who suggested to me that uh, Perhaps I could co-write some novels with some established science fiction writers. Um, that publisher linked me up with a man named Michael Scott, a very prolific Irish novelist who writes a lot about Irish folklore. And he was the first man to introduce me to John Dee, a, a personage I should have been aware of long before I might met Michael Scott. But I'm very grateful for that. And you can't see it, but I have... A whole bookcase of books uh, about John Dee to my right here, and so Merchant Prince is science fiction. There is there are no historical facts really uh, in in Merchant Prince, except occasionally once in a blue moon, I'll refer to something from John Dee. John Dee is also the lead character in my Merchant Prince novels. But the truth of the matter is, it may say John Dee, 
but the person I'm writing about is uh, my uh, avatar, uh, my alter ego, uh, Quark, and that's what the publisher wanted. And so uh, it's really Quark in the 23rd century, which is where he belongs. <laughs> um, but it's in the personage of John D., uh, who is an Elizabethan, finding himself in the 23rd century. Uh, so Merchant Prince was written with Michael Scott. Mm -hmm. The two of us did that together. I believe Michael did about 60% of the writing. I did about 40% of the writing. Then uh, Michael uh, had other things he had to do, so I moved on to working with Chelsea Yarbrough, a, a very famous science fiction writer, and uh, we wrote the second book together. Uh, the the um, percentages changed. I think I wrote I wrote about sixty percent of the book, and Chelsea wrote about forty percent. And the story wasn't finished yet, so we had to move on to a third novel, uh, Capital Offense. And um, by that time, I felt sufficiently um, good at writing mm -hmm. that I took the, the, uh, the obligation and the responsibility and the chore of writing upon myself and that all that book is written by myself. But it is a science fiction tale with an Elizabethan character uh, at, at its center. And um, it, it's a lovely finger exercise. Uh, I would recommend highly to everyone if you really want to read my books and you want to get a 4.1 to 4.3 rating, start with the O'Leary series. And, and then if you're really interested, go on to The Merchant Prince. But but The Merchant Prince is, is, a, is a, a beginning writer's attempt at writing um, a book. Uh, I, I think, I think uh, if I may, that my O'Leary series is an adult book. I know Illyria is on my my read list. My read list just keeps getting longer and longer and longer, though. <laughs> then I suggest to you that you put Illyria on the bottom of the list. <laughs> well, as of now, I've got eight more, no, nine more Diana Galbadon books to get through. And that's, those are wordy. Those are very wordy books. So are mine. So are mine. Oh, man. I love it, though. So you mentioned John D, and you mentioned that he's like a a character that you haven't been introduced to until recently. John D., ladies and gentlemen. Uh, a gift from a dear friend of mine. John okay. D. looks like a sorcerer, doesn't he? He does. And I believe because John D. was probably the original uh, sorcerer for many people, um, they all look like him. Um, yeah. And in fact, uh, going back to Shakespeare for just a minute, sorry to interrupt, Nick. Um, Shakespeare writes about a sorcerer. His name is Prospero in The Tempest. And many people believe that's John D that he's writing about. What was it about John D that like drew you to him to where that you found interesting that you kind of wanted to write about his character? First of all, he's a misunderstood historical character. He 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 was an enormously educated man, one of the most educated men in Europe, not to say England. Um, and he did many things, and he did them well. And he taught many people. He was a counselor to the queen, Queen Elizabeth. He, he taught her things. He did things for her. Um, however, he, he was on a quest to talk to angels in heaven. Now understand, uh, in 1583, when he was living, and uh, it, was a, it was a period of time in our history when things were being discovered, things that were outrageously being discovered, we were, they were finding out that the Earth wasn't the center of the universe. They were finding out that there, there were people living in the Pacific Ocean. They, they were finding out about the Americas. They were finding out about a, a way to get to Cathay, to China. Um, many, they were finding out more things about chemistry and, and mathematics and navigation. Um, it, it was a time of discovery. And, and everyone believed in the Bible didn't have to be their Bible. I mean, everybody had different Bibles. Truly, there were different Bibles. Mm -hmm. but, um, but all the Bibles said that there were angels. And the, and the Bible was the be-all and end-all uh, for religious belief. And um, so he thought angels have to exist. There must be a way to communicate with them. And he spent his life trying to communicate with angels. Unfortunately, he found some charlatans uh, who were his middlemen who uh, took him for all he was worth and convinced him that they were talking to angels and he took notes at seance, seances. And, uh, and history looks at that um, activity that he did 
and scorns that activity and, and, and has set him down for centuries as a kook. Uh, in the last 75 years or so, uh, he's, that reputation has been burnished and, and uh, resurrected. And people are realizing the man did a lot of good besides this other quest of his. And so that fascinated me. That, that, the fact that, 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 that someone several centuries later uh, is being rediscovered, and I wanted to know more about him. And, it, and his minor connections with Shakespeare, um, because I've always been fascinated with Shakespeare, were also intriguing to me. And, and it bothered me, uh, a man who had studied Elizabethan culture and times for a very long time before I met John Dee, I was very upset that I didn't know about this guy. How is it possible that I didn't know about this guy? And so uh, in order to rectify that problem, um, I got all those books over there and began to read and study him and try to figure out what was inside of his head, what made him tick, um, what were his disappointments, what were mm -hmm. his successes. And, and those things are what I write about in the Illyria series. Interesting. Excellent. Yeah, I, I think that before we actually sat down and talked with you, I don't think John D was a name that I was familiar with. And so I've done a little bit of research on him, but I can't say that anything's been in depth. I just kind of did a, a quick Google search and I don't know that that was probably fair uh, in, in the information that I received. But um, but yeah, it, it's definitely an interesting character uh, with everything that his name is associated with and, and everything else. So yeah, definitely requires a little bit more in depth Looking. He had the largest library in England, and and people came and went uh, borrowing books. And, and understand, there had just been a change in, um, I mean, it was within 100 years that that um, Martin Luther tacked up his, uh, I think it's 99 tenets on a church door, and it was the beginning of Protestantism. Um, and, and people... The, the new Protestant movement uh, in reaction to Catholicism was burning books constantly because they were Catholic and because they had things in them that Protestants believed were sacrilegious. And John Dee uh, spent his life trying to rescue these books from the bonfires because they had knowledge in them that needed to be preserved. Um, thank God for that. Your, your comment about him being the original sorcerer too makes a lot of sense thinking yeah. about it with the i mean all of all of what we see portrayed in entertainment even now as what a sorcerer or even like a wizard in lord of the rings or how you build a wizard in dungeons and dragons i'm like wait a minute yeah they're uh, all john know, d ian mckellen doesn't look that much different than no, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what i was thinking i'm like he just looks like gandalf yeah um and and he he was a wizard well he wasn't a wizard he he investigated what's called white magic as opposed to black magic um the people of his time were fearful that he was investigating black magic mm -hmm. and his house and home was raided i believe twice perhaps three times and many of the books that he spent his lifetime collecting were burnt when they invaded his home um but 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 he was interested in it in magic and, and magic today is, is considered you know not reality it's mm -hmm. it's it's something else um but at that time magic was very much believed in by many people uh very sophisticated university educated people magic was not a foreign thing it was something they were just not aware of but they knew that somewhere there was a way to access magic and, and make their lives better. And they and there were many important philosophers, including Newton, um, who who were exploring um, these um, um, magical mm -hmm. uh, things in, in order to find out the truth of the universe. I mean, if you think about it, uh, their research did evolve into, I guess, technology. Because that technology is, I guess, magic, so-called, because like radio waves and all that other stuff. And... Right. And, right. And not saying that, not basing reality off of a comic book, but Marvel says that magic is just science we don't understand yet. 
Right, and that's exactly, I believe, what the, what the Europeans and Elizabethans thought as well. And remember, as I mentioned Newton, Newton was studying magic and, and found gravity, and, and, you know, and, and we all think of gravity as an important scientific um, discovery. Mm -hmm. well, he was doing both at the same time. But history looks kind, more kindly on Newton than he does on John Dee. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think magic still exists. I made popcorn the other night and it only took a minute and a half. So. <laughs> See, but you you made it with a safe form of radiation. Magic. See, exactly. Newton, Bingo. Newton was grounded, but John Dee was had his head in the stars. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and I believe if he had lived, what? And I'm making this number up. If he had lived. 75 years later when Newton did that, you know, don't trust me on the, that number, but then perhaps his magic would have been more respected than, um, than Dee's, you know, with times, for instance, the microwave, uh, if we went back 75 years from when the microwave was, was used, founded and mm -hmm. uh, put together, I think people would say that that might be magic. It, uh, but but because of the space exploration for which microwave energy was uh, was uh, not discovered but but was used, um, you know well, we accept that it was part of space exploration and and a hundred years before they would have thought any sp uh, space exploration was science fiction. Yeah, I believe that. Mm -hmm. there, there's no arguing. <laughs> no, yeah, none whatsoever. Good. So. Well, and I'll see you next week. <laughs> All right. And we're done here with this lesson today. All right. So, Armin, let's change the topic real quick. Um, so, recently, we had the privilege of talking with your amazing wife, Kitty Swink. We had an absolute wonderful time with her. Uh, we talked about her her work over the years and different shows and things that she's been on uh, with, with acting. Of course, we talked about some Star Trek with her. Uh, but we also talked because she has beaten pancreatic cancer. We talked to her about her work with the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, or also known as PanCan. And so um, I'm sure that you're also appreciative of the work that PanCan has done, but we're hoping that maybe you can talk to us about the work that you and, and Kitty do together with PanCan and trying to raise awareness for pancreatic cancer. And, and how really, how can others help in this fight? Thank you, Tim. That's, that's very nice of you to ask that question. Um, yes, my, my wife, Kitty, is an 18-year survivor of pancreatic cancer. Uh, when she was diagnosed, um, the odds were that she would die. Um, there was a, only a 3% survival rate when she was diagnosed. I'm happy to say thanks to the efforts of science and a, a lot of the efforts of PanCan, of the organization, it is now... Uh, uh, almost four times as much. Uh, it is now 11% survival rate. That is still bad. That is still not yeah. good enough by any means. Right. And, um, but with the help of PanCan, and I'm going to talk more about that in a second, with the help of PanCan, we want to move that number to 100%. We, we want to, if you're diagnosed with, with pancreatic cancer, a horrible disease, we want there to be enough research enough uh, whatever you need to cure it to be able to cure it and what PanCan does is it collects it's a it's a charitable organization that collects money in order to to many things one is to promote research into how to cure pancreatic cancer two and this is enormously important for the people who are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer if you are are, are diagnosed with that disease you're at odds as to what to do next because the mythology around pancreatic cancer is it's a death sentence and perhaps it is um so what pancan does if you reach out to pancan they will give you counselors to help you digest that diagnosis they will they will lead you to the doctors in your area who are the best doctors to go to in order to survive that diagnosis. Um, uh, they will also talk to doctors. One of the problems with surviving pancreatic cancer is that when the symptoms do show up, it's usually way too late. Um, uh, the symptoms come at the very end of the disease. Mm -hmm. So you think you're healthy, as my wife did, until all of a sudden there are symptoms and the doctors go, 
oh my God, you're in stage four cancer, pancreatic cancer. Um, as far as I know, there's only one way to survive that, and that's to undergo an operation that my wife underwent, which is called the Whipple. And uh, with the Whipple, they remove various organs. And if you're lucky, and the cancer is located in the front, I believe, of the, of the pancreas, then you have a possibility of surviving. Um, but unfortunately, if it's in the back or in the middle, um, uh, they have to sew you back up and say, you know, let's, uh, let's hope for the best. Um, also, that's followed with chemotherapy, of course. So, um, they do many things. And every year, PanCan has a, a, a um, fundraiser, which is called Purple Stride. And I believe, don't quote me, but I believe this year Purple Stride is on the 29th of April. And in, in practically every major city in the United States, there's a large gathering of people who walk for Purple Stride and collect money for Purple Stride so that the efforts of PanCan can be realized, cures, outreach, doctors training, all of that, all the other things they do uh, can, be, can be helped by, by donations from people. We have just begun, Kitty and I and our co-partner Jonathan Frakes, and we've just added John Billingsley to that group as well, um, all, all members of the Star Trek family. Um, we, uh, we have started a, a fundraising campaign, which is, we've been doing it for a number of years now. It's called Trek Against Pancreatic Cancer. And uh, if people are interested, and I hope they will be, uh, they can go to PanCan. They can uh, find us, Trump, uh, not Trump, uh, Trek Against uh, Pancreatic Cancer and donate to one of the three teams that are out there collecting for our group. You can either donate to my um, wing of that campaign or to Kitty, Kitty Swink's wing or to Jonathan Frakes' wing. Each of us are captains. You can, you can donate to one of the three captains. All of that money goes to PanCan. And uh, last year we raised, I believe, uh, $100,000 for pancreatic cancer. And uh, we hope, thank you very much, and we hope this year to do better. Um, and, uh, and, and Tim has offered to help us um, with auctioning items, which we are very grateful for. And we hope everyone will, will hear this plea and think about contributing. Excellent. And yeah, we're, we're looking forward to getting those items from you. We'll put those up for auction. And, uh, and also we're going to put links for PanCan uh, down below in the show notes so that people can go there and see the amazing work that these guys are doing. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a big donation because you have to remember there's a lot of people in this world. If you, if you only have a couple bucks to give and you can donate that couple bucks, well, your couple bucks plus my couple bucks plus somebody else's couple bucks, it all adds up very quickly and can do some great benefit in a short time. Well said. Absolutely true. If, if it's a dollar, it's a two dollars, five dollars, thousand dollars. It doesn't matter. Uh, it just accumulates. And as I said, it all accumulates to that goal that we have this year, I believe this year. We hope to make, uh, again, 100000 again. That'd be fantastic. And so for the links that, uh, for the items that Armin and Kitty will be sending us, we'll put those up on auction. We'll have those listed not only in our Facebook group, but I'll, I'll include those links on our Twitter page as well. And you guys will be able to see those. And not only will all 100% of the proceeds of those uh, auctions go to benefit PanCan, but you'll get something cool in return. You'll get some some signed merch as well. Yeah, but one of the things we've already gotten um, is not just stuff from from the three of us, from the or the four captains, but we've also gotten uh, quite a bit of contributions from other Star Trek actors, uh, which you will get, Tim, which you can put up on auction. Fantastic. Well, we're looking forward to it, and, and uh, it's all for a good cause. So we are the three of us are just absolutely thrilled to be a part and and help in any way that we can. Thank you, Tim. So, and now a word from our sponsor. Since 1982, Vital Signs and Graphics has been helping professionals with all their image, logo, and design needs. Perhaps you're looking for signs and banners, truck and trailer lettering, business cards, brochures, or other image and marketing aids, Vital Signs and Graphics in-house design studio has you covered. From logos to apparel, start to finish, Vital Signs and Graphics has everything you need 
to look and feel professional. Call Rick at 231-652-3300. He'll get you noticed. Welcome back to the FSF Popcast. Oh, goodness. And on the massive tonal shift that is the <laughs> FSF Popcast, we go from the incredible work of PanCan back to the incredible work of William Shakespeare. Because, I mean, why not? Why? <laughs> part of what we all do as humans is we pass on what we've learned. And I have learned that not only are you a performer of Shakespeare, but you are also a professor at the University of Southern California. I was uh, until until very recently. Yes, I was. Uh, and, and the only reason I'm not is a long story. I didn't quit. They didn't fire me. It's just I'm in limbo right now. That's all. You know, it, it seems like it should be a more popular course and that you would be in high demand. I, I can't imagine. I, I am in high that. demand. Thank you, <laughs> Kathleen. I just uh, just don't work at uh, USC, uh, but I am in uh, I am the uh, I would venture to say, let's just be nice about it. I'm one of the two uh, uh, most in demand Shakespeare teachers in Los Angeles. And that is fantastic. Very cool. So what is it about teaching Shakespeare that you find so appealing and of his numerous, numerous works? Do you have a favorite? No, I don't have a favorite. Um, what do I find fascinating? Um, well, as a writer and as a human being, I find language fascinating. Um, I find many things fascinating, but, but language is one of them. And uh, language was relatively new in Shakespeare's time. Um, they, language was totally different about 100 years before. Uh, if you ever read Chaucer or if you ever hear the original Chaucer, uh, you know, and this was only 100 years before, um, the opening lines of the Canterbury Tales is, uh, um, I just forgotten it, hold on. When the, I can't remember the second word. Um, uh, when that something, when that something, that's not modern English. Oh, good, because I thought my something. earphones broke for yeah. minutes. I was like... <laughs> it's either that's not modern English or ah. Tim is having a stroke. <laughs> and now I remember. When that opera, opera was what I couldn't remember. When that opera with the shorter suit of the druch de march of Persa to the road and every vein in switch the core, of which virtu, Ajandora, um, that's Middle English. And that was written and spoken a hundred years before Shakespeare was writing. And language was very plastic when Shakespeare was writing. And, and he's experimenting with the language. He's experimenting with how you put words together. But one of the things he wasn't experimenting with um, was the way words are put together. Uh, he, he wrote them and he wrote the way words are put together, the same way Chaucer did, the same way the scholars and writers of, of the Middle Ages put things together. And that was through the study of rhetoric. And aside from John Dee, uh, I'd spent a lifetime studying rhetoric and, and how words are put together to, to convince someone of the rightness of an action. Usually when we hear the word rhetoric today in the 21st century, usually a bad word, you know, it's just a lot of rhetoric. Um, and, and there's a lot of, there's a truth in that. But, but for the Elizabethans, uh, rhetoric was the art and science of putting words together to make a cogent argument. And, and, and that's one of his skills as a, as a writer that I'm fascinated by. And so that's, that's one of the reasons, Kathleen. I love that. I've always found Shakespeare to be incredibly fascinating as well. And I mean, I'm almost embarrassed after you said that you don't have a favorite that I'm like, but I, I do have a favorite. Well, that's good. Which one is it? Hamlet. I absolutely Hamlet. love Hamlet. And every, I mean, every version of Hamlet that I've seen, whether it's been a stage production or it's been a recorded production, has its own special little spin on it that I really, really like. Um, and I know that there are a lot of people who didn't appreciate it, but the version of Hamlet with David Tennant and Patrick Stewart is so good. Yes, it is. Yes, it, it is. is so good. And one of my I know, favorites. oh my gosh. And I know that there were 
there were a lot of people who were critical over the the use of the security cameras and the bringing it into modern day, but leaving the language not modern. And I'm like, but it worked so well for that. And the right. performance itself was spectacular. David Tennant as Hamlet was amazing. And if you get a chance, if you like that production, and you do, check out David Tennant as Richard II. That Ooh. also is an extraordinary production. Ooh. I haven't but, found but, anything you know, I didn't like David Tennant in yet, anyway. Yeah, that's true. Um, Hamlet is based on an earlier play, an earlier work. And, and that earlier work was, uh, I would say, I'm going to make this number up, about 200 years before Shakespeare's time. So um, Shakespeare yanked it out of that Middle Ages period and, and sort of put it in Elizabethan times. So why can't we yank it out of Elizabethan times and put it into the 21st century? Right. I, I, I don't mind seeing Hamlet in space if, if all of the all of the themes and all of the things that happen, all the plot devices, if they all make sense, if something doesn't really make sense, then I have a problem with it. But putting it in space and, and, and uh, if, as long as it works, it works. I, I'm listening to the language. I'm, I'm not worried about what the costumes look like. Right. I, I am at times. It's part, of the, it's part of the whole evening if you go to the theater. But... but um, I'm, I'm much more interested in, in what the production is doing, just as you said, Kathleen, what the production is doing with the play. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, too, a lot of people don't realize that their first introduction to Hamlet is Lion King. And then they're yeah. like, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. That is the same story, <laughs> isn't it? Like, yes. Yes, it is. So if you can take Hamlet and you can put it in the 21st century, you can take Hamlet and you can put it on the African safari, you can do Hamlet anywhere. Exactly. Um, and if I may, for just to pull things a little closer together, you may. Uh, my good friend Alexander Sadig, who played Doctor Bashir mm -hmm. on Deep Space Nine, his history is Hamlet. He is the son of a king who was who was whose whose uncle took the throne away from his father. That is Hamlet. Hmm. That's kind of cool. To him so much more now. <laughs> As if I didn't want to talk to him enough anyway. That's even cooler. Yeah, he's a, he's a prince. He literally is a prince. Hmm. I've, I've been in places where they, where people have come up to him and begged him to come back to be king. Oh, wow. Oh, my word. Interesting. Very cool. Huh. And now I feel like I need to do some research on this Hamlet guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my yeah. word. So, Armin, the last time we talked to you, we discussed uh, the DS9 episode, Far Beyond the Stars, and how important it was as a social commentary. Uh, so, are there any other episodes of DS9 or Star Trek in general that you feel are a special relevance to society that we are living in today? Nick, all of them. <laughs> all of them. That's what Star Trek does. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm not so sure the Ferengi episodes are, but but even some even <laughs> those have a couple of things. But but the purpose of Star Trek <clears throat> is to look at societal issues through the prism of science fiction, which makes them more palatable, and 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 ask questions, never give answers, but ask questions and leave it up to the audience to do that. But but there there are countless episodes in all the variations of Star Trek, uh, especially in the TV shows that um, are dealing with societal issues and, and how do people deal with them. So uh, uh, I would have to spend the next two hours listing all of them from all of them. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, I think that for me, so I have never, you know, when we, you and I first talked uh, on the show here, I was not that big of a Trek fan and I was kind of coming around to it and, and a few things. And Strange New Worlds has really kind of helped me jump into that. I very much have enjoyed that series. And so I decided, well, what the heck? I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch it because I like things in chronological order. So I was like, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch it from, you know, uh, TOS on. And so one of the episodes that I found have found most interesting, and we were, since we're talking about things that are looking at, uh, you know, our society in general, there was an episode, and I can't remember the name of it, but where these 
two planets are fighting each other and but they're not actually using actual warfare they're using science to to dictate you know where the attack is and if this you know and they have like death chambers that people just okay you your number has been chosen you have to go there and and i just thought it was kind of interesting because i mean that's not happening right now but it's also like i could see how that could happen in our modern society at some point because people are going to be you know they're everyone's afraid of nuclear weapons and what could possibly happen with you know anything and everything that's related to that but if that was to ever go away okay well, how would people fight wars well this star trek episode that was done you know 60 years ago talked about that very topic and it, to me it was just kind of like it made me sit down and think for the rest of the night i would kind of sat there in my chair sipping a cup of hot tea watching the, my wood stove and then watching the fire flicker and i'm thinking and i just kind of sat there thinking well what if that was the eventuality for human society now mm-hmm you know, and I and I also think that that's what a good sci-fi in in that type of genre should do. It should reflect, make you think about what y- is going on in your world and what is your future going to look like. And I kind of think that the, you know, for that episode, my episode, my issues with Captain Kirk aside, it it really did help me sit down and think about that in that time in that type of uh, mind frame. Well, I think uh, Gene Roddenberry would be very happy with you, Tim. That's exactly what his audience. That's what he wanted his audience to do. And that is that episode you describe, of course, is from the original series. Um, uh, that's what they want you to do. They and and and, and oftentimes um, uh, episodes um, suggest things that later on in the future become true. We did an episode where uh, we had the people of San Francisco taking all the homeless people. And putting them in the section of San Francisco and walling it off, and and that's where they were they were quarantined to. Uh, well, I don't think it was more than a year after that episode of ours aired that San Francisco took all the homeless people and put them in a quarantined area. Uh, um, you know, sometimes in science fiction, what is science fiction becomes reality. So yes. It, it should prompt you to think that's that's what the whole purpose of Star Trek is meant to do is to make you is to suggest something and then you come up with an answer. They're not going to come up with an answer, but you come up with an answer. And and if you don't come up with an answer, at least they've gotten you to think about it. I agree. You know, and, and coming from such a Star Wars background, my, you know, my whole thing with Star Wars is it's just it's fun. You watch it. It's, it's mindless escape. Uh, but with Star Trek, I find myself after each episode kind of thinking and contemplating, okay, what did I watch and what's going on in that episode? And, and, and not necessarily what were they trying to teach me, but what were they trying to help me to think about? What were they trying to help me to contemplate about my future, the world's future, the uh, race relations, all these different things that we see that are still kind of, you know, 60 years later are still problematic. Uh, but you know, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and in the original series, there is an episode, and I don't remember its name. It's a very famous one. It was on a planet. They arrived on a planet, and there were two races on that planet. One, and their faces were one half white and one half black. Oh, yeah, yeah. And one race had the whiteness on one side and the other race had the whiteness on the other side and of course had the darkness on the other side and and they one race just decided they were more superior than the others and and um, shatner and and everybody else scratched their heads and went they're exactly the same except that, that it's just the difference of the faces well um you know that's that was very much talking about race relations back in the 60s yeah absolutely i had to look it up because i'm like i know that episode and i couldn't remember the name let that be your last battlefield thank you there you go i'm like i know that episode i just watched that episode not that long ago uh and that was the i think that was the one star trek episode that hooked me Uh, Mm. not not that the others didn't but that's the one that i after that episode i i rushed home every wednesday night to see the Star Trek show because I wanted to see more of shows like that. Very cool. All right. So Armin, as we did the last time you were here, we, you know, that we try to involve our audience as much as possible. Now, some of the questions that were asked uh, for us to ask of you 
were questions that we asked in a previous interview, or they're ones that we felt that we could confidently respond with the answer two hours. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's my response to all questions, two hours, <laughs> two hours. Uh, but we do have a couple of questions here from you, uh, from a couple different people. Uh, so we have one from Drew, who's uh, the host of the Across the Stars podcast. He's a big fan. He wanted to know that if Quark were ever had to be recast with a younger actor, who would you like to see get that role and why? Uh, I don't, I have two hours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, um, I've never contemplated somebody else playing Quark. Um <laughs> Except Max, um, Max Rudenchik. Um I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't have an answer. Not a. That's okay. Answer, no. Nope. That's okay. All right. All right. So if the Aaron next question... was still alive, if Aaron Eisenberg was still alive, I would say Aaron, but uh, he's not, so he can't do it. Hmm. Fair enough. I think that's a good answer too. All right. Uh, next one comes from Jesse. She's the host of the Crusher Convo podcast. Both of these guys are good friends of ours, friends of our show. Uh, now, her question is about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Now, she says, I used to love to hate Principal Snyder. Good. She says, but I'm curious if there was any direction you wish they had gone with the character before his not untimely demise. No, I thought the writers did an excellent job. Um, uh, I was meant to be an asshole, and I enjoyed playing an asshole. <laughs> and, you did uh, a fabulous job at it. Thank you, thank you. Um, and uh, I, I love playing Snyder, especially because I was doing it at the same time I was doing Quark on Deep Space Nine. So for me, that's a radical difference between two different personalities. One was a people lover, the other one was a people hater. And um, the, the ability to switch roles uh, uh, many times, many weeks uh, in a row, um, was an invigorating experience. It, it recharged my batteries for both shows. Hmm. Um, and uh, but I don't think there's any direction they could have gone with Snyder that um, would have been better. In, in fact, when I heard that that the series regulars were going to graduate from high school and going to college, I know they didn't need a, a high school principal anymore. And I asked them for uh, a death scene where they would eat me. And uh, I'm happy to say uh, Jocelyn companies uh, took my request and, and made it so uh, and uh, allowed me to be eaten by my good friend, Harry Groner. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, she followed up that question with, I loved his death scene. It was exactly how I pictured it. He was such a cocky know-it-all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was just it a little shit. It was just a little shit. And, and, uh, and the irony is, um, I cannot tell you or convince you for that matter, what good friends I had on that set. Even though on camera, uh, uh, I was not kind to them. They were not kind to me. Um, but the moment the director said cut, we had great times together, and um, I'm very fond of all the people that I worked with on Buffy and have wonderful memories of them. Um, and I can't say that about a lot of shows, um, but that one, yes, absolutely. Excellent. I know that we had talked previously about Principal Snyder as well with the, why did somebody who hated people so much, hated children so much, decide to become a principal? He needed a job. And he couldn't get work on Star Trek, so uh, <laughs> he needed a job. Um, and I, and we've all met people who are authoritarian figures who who you know who believe it's their way or the highway. And um, and unfortunately, this was man. This man Snyder was put in charge of children, which is not a good thing. It, it is also, if I may say this, it is delicious to me that of those two parts, um, Snyder has no first name. And Quark has no last name. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, didn't think of that. Uh, but I, Quark but, uh, Snyder. Quark Snyder. And and <laughs> for those people who watch Buffy, at the end of every episode, there's a there's a graphic where um, this stick figure growls. Um, that that was one of the voice of that is one of the producers, and his name is Snyder. Oh, that's funny. Oh, too funny. <laughs> that's funny. Too funny. Oh, goodness. 
So we talk a lot about what you've done before as an actor and what you have coming up as a writer. But I found something in your IMDb listing that I'm hoping you could shed a little more light on for us. So what can you tell us about The Assassin's Apprentice, Silvador's of the Canary Islands, and your character Roy, without spoiling any of it? Two hours. <laughs> um... <laughs> I love that answer, by the that's way. A I think great that's answer. My... I'm going to start using that with my daughter. I think um, that's my favorite answer, honestly, that anybody's ever given us for anything when it can't something can't be spoiled or it's an like answer you've given a million times. Two hours. That is just, <laughs> I love it. Uh, Kathleen, I can't tell you much. I only worked one day. It, it, was, uh, it was a chance to work uh, uh, for my friend Ryan and, uh, and Bob Picardo. And it was sort of just, oh, you need an actor? Fine, I'll do it. And, and happy to do it. And, and so... Yes, I am part of that, but I, I know very little about the project. I don't know what happened on the day that I was there, and, and I was able to help some friends of mine. Ooh. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Sorry, I'm just going to happy dance. I think Nick froze. He did, apparently. And he is having me? all sorts of technology issues. Today. Yeah, we can hear you. Oh. We can still hear you, but your image is, Man. you are looking off into the distance very longingly. <laughs> That's the look I get when I can't remember my lines on stage. <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay. There we go. I just had to reset my camera. I think my camera's going out. It's entirely possible. <laughs> and you're froze again. Yay. Well, Ollie will just do audio then for this. Okay. <laughs> uh, so going back to the 24th century one last time, according to my research you're one of the five actors to feature as the same personality in three star trek series uh next generation and, and one movie yes nine one movie where they cut me out oh. yeah <laughs> so quark has definitely become a fan favorite in tv shows comic cons uh memes and you know here if, on if the we internet. talk about it if we talk about star trek tv series it's not three it is now four. Oh. Of course, uh, I didn't appear, but my voice did in Lower Decks. That's... Oh, that's oh, yeah. right. I forgot about there that. There you go. Yeah. And so what does it mean to you to have a character in the Star Trek universe and the opportunity to be able to meet fans in person? Two hours. <laughs> Two hours. Um, first of all, it means I can pay my rent. That's number one. Um Number two, uh, it's very flattering. I just mentioned to you, you know, about 10 minutes ago that I would run home every Wednesday night to see the original show. I was a huge fan of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and when we started Deep Space Nine, I think I was the only main actor on the set who, who knew anything about Star Trek. I, knew, I remember somebody coming up to me and said, we're going to have a Klingon. What's a Klingon? Armin, you know this stuff. What's a Klingon? Um, anyway. Um, so it, it is enormously flattering and mind-boggling to me that I uh, am part of the franchise. Uh, you can't imagine the joy that it gives me to, to be able to say that. Because I'm, you know, as a teenager, I, beyond my wildest dreams that that would happen. Now, the second part of your question, Nick. The only reason I think, and really the only reason I think I go to conventions is to meet the fans because I revel in what they have to say to me. Um, first of all, uh, we, let's get the obvious out of the way. It's very nice to be flattered for eight hours. Uh, everybody comes up to the table and is very kind. That's nice. That's very nice. But that's not the primary reason. Every now and then, somebody comes up to me and says to me, as they have with other actors from the, from the franchise, I was going through a bad time at that time and I was watching your show and uh, I was able to get through my problems or my family was able to get through their problems because we watched your show and it gave us, it gave us hope uh, or it gave us something to talk about or brought us together. 
um, or inspired me to become an engineer or to go into aerospace or into medicine or, or, or whatever of the myriad of things that people have said to me. And that to me is the, is the juiciest part of going to conventions is hearing those stories and knowing that somehow the entertainment that we thought we were providing was more than that, was helpful, therapeutic, um, and uh, humane. Nice. Excellent. Well, I will, since I haven't gotten the chance to see you at a con, I feel the same way. I mean, I think anybody who's watched DS9 has had those moments, but now it's that like, I get to relive watching those episodes with my dad and I get to share my love of sci-fi with my daughter because of it. And it's so great. And she thinks Quark's hilarious because his ears are massive. He's also yeah. just, well, he's, he's, he's Quark play. and you love him. Or you hate him, uh, but, but you're not quite sure if you should love him or you should hate him somewhere in the middle. Um, as opposed to Snyder, um, right. but um, yeah, that's that's the kind of comment, Kathleen, that um, I I live for. And when I get on the plane to go to these places, that's I hope that I'll get something akin to that uh, to take home with me when I come back from that convention. Hmm. I mean, cool. I I love DS Nine so much that when my husband and I, when we found out that I was pregnant, our boy name was Miles Edward. Like, I love DS9. <laughs> I mean, and Miles Edward are both family names as well, but I'm like, so with our last name being Wass, can we give him two middle names and have him be Miles Edward O'Brien Wass so that his initials are then meow? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, be careful what you wish for, Kathleen. It's still on the baby name list. If we ever have another one, it is still on the list. Good, good. <laughs> uh, if I ever see Colm again, I don't see him very often at all. I, I, I will say. <laughs> very cool. Well, Armin, thank you so much for being on our show today. Where can our listeners go to find out more about you and your works? Uh, well, certainly the easiest place to go is to my website. Um, every every actor has a website, so do I. Uh, www.armandshimmerman, make sure there's only one M in the middle, um, dot com. And uh, there you will find out not only about my books and uh, my charitable work, uh, but also, which we haven't talked about, which is a great deal of my life, um, is uh, the theatrical work that I've done, uh, the work on the theater. And you will find the dozens, if not hundreds, of, of stage plays that I've participated in, um, um, including ones where I was directed by Andy Robinson, uh, who was Garrick on um, Deep Space Nine. So uh, I post things there. You can find more about me there. Um, and if you can't find there, just go, just go to your web browser, write in Armin Shimmerman, and you'll be flooded with with uh, the articles about me where I've told my particulars over and over again. <laughs> Excellent. We will definitely link your website and remind our viewers and our listeners, as always, when in doubt, Google it. Google it, exactly. Google is free, exactly. All right, guys, I want to remind you that subscribing is still the single most important thing that you can do to ensure that we get more amazing guests like Armin Shimmerman to come back on our show and have this conversation with us and hopefully have provided you with some funny moments that you were able to listen to and enjoy as well. But please subscribe. It helps us more than you will know. And we want to make sure that you go to arminshimmerman.com. Check out what Armin's doing. Check out pancan.org as well. And everything that's going on there, you'll have an opportunity to see that. And uh, really, they're doing some amazing work, and they need the help. So anything that you can give them would be wonderful. We need now, to save lives. We need to save lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and your donations help the science be able to achieve that. It helps fund the research to make, help make that happen. So, uh, And if for whatever reason, though, you are not happy with the content of our show today, please remember, you can always lodge a complaint with the head of our complaint department. That, of course, is the students who were in Armin's classes over at USC. Now, most students try to get out of their classes, but not Armin's students. 
They're annoyed with the fact that we're interrupting their time with their favorite instructor. So be sure to send in three copies of your complaint so it can be shared equally amongst the students. They, do, they divide in threes. That's how they work. Uh, but they want to make sure that once they have decided the validity of your complaint, that we, the offending parties here on this podcast, will have no choice but to pay the piper and face the angry mob. Oh goodness! <laughs> thanks, thanks again, Armin. Armin, this has been a blast. Thank You're you welcome. again for coming a second time and and visiting with us. We have enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, invite me back. I'm glad to do it. You guys are terrific. And, and again, thank you for the help that you're going to offer PanCan and uh, that wonderful effort and all the nice things you guys said. Um, uh, uh, so it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank oh, you. Thank you. All right, guys, that's going to conclude us for the FSF podcast. Goodbye. Bye. On behalf of the rest of the hosts of the FSF podcast, we want to thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, please contact us by means of Twitter or Instagram using the handle at FSF podcast or go to www.fsfpopcast.com and click on the contact me link. Thanks again and hope you enjoyed the episode. Copyright 2022 FSF Podcast. Reference to any specific product or entity mentioned on this podcast does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by FSF Podcast. The views expressed by the guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact us via email at info at fsfpopcast.com. Original music by Jordan Michaels.